Well, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We will finish Revelation chapter 1 tonight. Let's get started. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the chest with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. Okay. So last time, two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation 1, 1 through 8. As we began our study in the book of Revelation in earnest, uh, in those sections there in that chapter, again, you had a, an introduction into the book of Revelation as John tells you what this book is going to be about. It is, it is a letter, but it is a letter that is talking about uh, an apocalypse. It's a revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation that he gave to his servant, John, to also then give unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then we looked and saw how this uh, letter has a greeting that it looks like a letter where he says, I, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace be unto you. And then we get this greeting from the triune God and then this uh, sort of prophecy of the coming son of man, the one who will come on the clouds, uh, whom every eye will see. They will see him whom they have pierced and they will then. Uh, mourn because of him whom they have pierced. And all the earth will uh, wail because of him. And then the, the revelation that this is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, showing how Jesus himself, the returning Christ, has the full uh, abilities, the full attributes of God. He is the one who is the beginning and the ending. He is the, the, the whole meaning of, of, of history revolves around him. So as we come to the passage tonight, Revelation 1, 9 through 20, we're going to see a grand vision 
a grand vision of the exalted Christ. As, as John is given this vision of the exalted Christ. And really this passage kind of breaks down into two main sections. First, we're going to see John's testimony. How he introduces himself and he gives his testimony uh, of his call to write the book. So, you know, he is sort of revealing how he was chosen. He is God's chosen instrument to be the agent of revelation for Jesus Christ. And then he's going to see, he's going to say he has this vision of the exalted Christ. And we're going to look at this vision of the exalted Christ in the last half. So it's 9 through 11 is John's testimony and 12 through 20 is this vision of the exalted Christ. So first let's look at John, the chosen instrument of revelation in verses 9 through 11. So after giving us this sort of triune greeting from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and announcing the coming of Christ to return on the clouds, John, who is the human author, he is the one to whom the revelation was given to give to the seven churches, he introduces himself, where he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he refers to himself and to his readers as their brother and their companion. Now, of course, this term brother is a common reference to fellow Christians as part of being in God's family. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, It's the same thing. uh, In fact, John wrote this thing in his gospel when he says in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, as many as received Christ to them, to those who receive him, he gives the power to be called sons or daughters of God, even to them that believe on his name. And these sons and daughters of God were born not of blood, not of the will of man or of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. So those who have been brought into the family of God, those who who believe and receive in Jesus Christ, who are adopted into his family, we are the adopted children of God, we can then call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. We We share a familial connection because we're all in Christ. Now this phrase also, brothers and brother and companion, also speaks of solidarity. John is announcing that he is a fellow partner in their tribulation. In other words, John is just like us, okay? Even though he is the Apostle John, he is one of the twelve. He's one of not only just one of the twelve, but he was one of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the, the special three that, that were that were part of you know, just a closer, intimate group of those 12. You think of this guy, wow, he must have been someone special. He's an apostle, capital A apostle. He's a disciple, capital D disciple. He was the one who was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who caught a glimpse of the glorified Christ in human form. But he's just like one of us. He says, I am a brother. I am a fellow companion in your tribulations. And the same can be said of all Christians today. Just because there are pastors and elders and deacons and, and officers in the church doesn't make us special, doesn't make us better than anybody else. We are all 
fellow companions. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we all undergo the same tribulations and troubles that all Christians undergo in all times. But here John further comments that he is a brother and a companion in their tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So this is further evidence that John is a fellow pilgrim along with the rest of us. He is a companion in their tribulations as well. And we're going to see him in a moment that John is in exile. He is in exile for his testimony, for his work in the church, his testimony to Christ. It's, again, it just shows how the apostles were not exempt from the trials and tribulations that the rest of the church faced. In fact, if anything, you could probably say they faced more persecution because they were foundational members of the church. I mean, if you think about how you see in the Gospels, you see as Jesus moves and as he advances the kingdom of God, you see all this demonic activity happening. Demons here, demons there, and he's continually casting out demons all over the place. Where are all these demons today? I mean, it's like, did he cast them all out? But the point is, is that what Jesus was doing was unique. It was special. It was a, a breaking into history of God coming down in flesh and dwelling amongst us. And it was, it was the beginning, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. So as such, you have this sort of rise in demonic activity trying to resist that. And the same thing is happening with the apostles. These are the people that Jesus commissions and says, you will be foundational for my church because the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the prophets. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the main headstone that bears the weight of the foundation. But the apostles are there, too. And they are foundational too. And you see some demonic activity going on in the book of Acts. As they, as they go forth and try to spread the gospel, they are being resisted at every turn. So if anything, the apostles were not exempt from tribulation. They probably faced more of it. I mean, again, think of the apostle Paul. Second Corinthians is sort of an autobiography of all the troubles that he faced in his ministry. And he lists a whole load of things that he's gone through that he suffered for his testimony to Christ. And John is also a companion in the kingdom and patience of Christ. This is a way of saying that members of the kingdom, that is us, we who believe, must follow the path that Jesus himself took. I, I, I mention this a lot. It's a theme I keep bringing uh, along uh, as much as I can to impress this upon you, is that the pathway to the kingdom goes through suffering. The pathway to Jesus obtaining his crown went through the cross. Think about that. His, his pathway to exaltation went first through humiliation. He, he entered into this world, he suffered, and then he was exalted. And that's the path that Christians take too. We suffer tribulation in this life for the glory of the life that comes. So the pathway to the kingdom went through the road of the cross. The road to exaltation goes through humiliation. Paul confirms this in 2 Timothy 2.12. He says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we suffer, we will reign with him. The pathway to glory leads through suffering and tribulation. And now we also see here that John was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos is a small island. So again, if you can kind of picture 
Asia Minor or Turkey, you know, and where it places in the world map. So you've got Asia Minor and uh, just a little southeast of the town of Ephesus is this teeny tiny little rock of an island called Patmos. And that's where John was. He was in exile. And it was sort of like a, think of it as sort of like an ancient penal colony where the Romans sent uh, dissidents or prisoners that they wanted to just sort of like get out of society and just remove them away. So he was there. He was in exile due to his faithful ministry for the word of God. And it is while he's on Patmos that he receives this vision of the exalted Christ. Now, again, remember, this is near the end of the first century, around 95-ish A.D. during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And there was, during that period of time, there was a persecution of the church. So it is here, while he's on Patmos, that he receives this vision of the exalted Christ. And he says here in verses 10 and 11, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia. And then he lists the seven churches. Now, there's this, this interesting phrase here, in the Spirit and the Lord's Day. Uh, a lot of people uh, try to make some hay of the Lord's Day. Essentially, the Lord's Day is Sunday. It's the first day of the week. Um, there are other places in the New Testament that talk about how the church met on the first day of the week. And here he's just saying it was on the Lord's Day, it was on a Sunday that this happened to me, that I got this vision. But it's not like saying the day of the Lord. That's, that's more a technical phrase that talks about a day of judgment that's coming. But this phrase in the spirit is a little trickier. Now, most English translations will have like a capital S there for the spirit. I think New King James may have a capital S. I don't know if anybody's got anything other than a New King James that might have, but... It's, you know, the, in some of these translations might have a small s, but most of them I think I saw had a capital S, which indicates the Holy Spirit. Usually they capitalize um, any kind of reference to the, the Trinity in there. Um, this phrase, in the Spirit, is used a couple of times in the book of Revelation. We see it again in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, chapter 21, verse 10 where he says he was up in the spirit. I was taken up in the spirit. Now, there are some who understand this to be like Paul's vision. He talks about a vision that he has in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says he was taken up to the third heaven. And, well, he doesn't say he was. He uses, he says, I know a man who was taken up to the third heaven. He's referring to himself because he's not trying to boast, uh, he, but he's trying to prove that he's got some apostolic uh, credentials when he says this. He says, I was taken up to the third heaven. Uh, so it would, it, some say that this is what he's referring to. In other words, like sort of like a disembodied experience. Um, others seem to think that it's something like what Peter experienced in Acts chapter 10. So if you think about Acts chapter 10, Peter is on the roof of someone's house and he has a vision. That's where he is given a vision of this sort of like this tablecloth that is unfurled and there's all kinds of animals on there and then a voice says peter take and eat and of course peter says i'm a jew i haven't eaten anything unclean and you know the voice says take and eat don't call anything that i've called clean unclean so he has this vision and some people think that what john has is something similar to that so in other words some kind of prophetic ecstasy where he falls into a trance sort of like what peter did 
Uh, which is it? I kind of lean to the last. I think it was some kind of prophetic ecstasy that he was in. Um, we see this again in Ezekiel, uh, some similar language, where in Ezekiel 3.12, the prophet says, uh, Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. It's similar language to that. So I think it's sort of he was in a prophetic spirit, in a, if you will. And again, you have to remember, Revelation is, among other things, it's prophecy. It's an apocalyptic prophecy, but it's prophecy nonetheless. And here, John is going to receive a series of visions that will, he will be later told to write in a book. Put these visions in a book. Now, we said a moment ago, this vision John receives is of the exalted Christ. Now, before we take a look at the vision in detail, I want to take a moment of what's going I want to take a, a moment to consider what is going on so far here in Revelation. Uh, the vision John sees of the exalted Christ is sort of a microcosm or a, a sort of a short form uh, view of what is going to happen in a large view of the book. Okay, so the book is given to comfort Christians who are going and undergoing persecution, to show them that Christ is in control, that he hasn't, take, he hasn't taken his hand off the wheel, that this isn't some car about to spin off and a wreck off a cliff. It's not a train that's about to collide with another train going on. God is in control. Don't worry. Persevere, and, and you, will, you will be rewarded for your perseverance. That's what the book in general is. And here, John is sort of, here, what is he? He is a person suffering persecution for his testimony to the faith. He is a person who is in exile. He's been removed from his church. Many thought that before he was in Patmos, he was ministering to the church at Ephesus. So he's been removed from his church. He's been removed from his congregation. These people that I'm sure he loves and cares for. And now he's here. He's probably wondering, uh, you know, has my ministry been a waste of time? Uh, you know, maybe I'm feeling doubt and despair. Have I done the right thing? Am I being punished for something I've done wrong? And here in his darkest moment, he gets a vision of the victorious and exalted Christ. So he's himself is being comforted by this vision, which is meant to give comfort to the church as a whole. Now, before John sees anything, he hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. And of course, this idea of a trumpet indicates that this message is of great importance. It is a proclamation. It is sort of a, you know, you think of what trumpets symbolize. You know, it is sort of the calling forth of armies, you know, or, or go, you know they, they go forth on a trumpet and all these things. It is a, an, an announcement with great fanfare. And he hears this voice. It sounds like a trumpet behind him that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, we talked already last time about the Alpha and Omega, what that represents, the first and the last. It just speaks of the eternal, infinite quality of the second person of the Trinity. It's a quality that he shares with the Father. So he himself is also... Uh, eternal, infinite, everlasting. He is deity, just like the Father. And what's important here for our purposes is the command to write it in a book. Now, why would you think he would be commanded to write it in a book as opposed to just, you know, 
go to these seven churches and prophesy and tell them what I told you. Because if you think about what the prophets in the Old Testament did, he says, you know, I received the word from the Lord. And he says, go to my people Israel. And, of course, then the prophet would go and say, thus spake the Lord. And he would prophesy to the people. Then later it's usually collected in a book. But why do you think John... Why do you think Jesus tells John to write what he's about to see and put it in a book? What does a book suggest? Permanence. Permanence. There you go. It's, if, 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 I, if you didn't write in a book, I'm sure like many of you, I would forget. <laughs> if God told me 20 chapters of prophecy, I would probably forget, you know, 19 of them. Okay. And then so he says, write in a book. It's for permanence. It's for a record. Okay. And, of course, this would be delivered to the churches as well. So now we move to verses 12 through 16 as we see this vision of the exalted Christ. After hearing this loud voice commanding him to write what he sees in a book, so John hears this voice behind him. And like anybody else, if I heard a voice behind me, I would turn to see what was back there, right? I mean, I think it's just pretty natural. And he turns and sees Uh, To see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now this vision essentially has two parts, the seven lampstands, and then the one like the Son of Man who is in the midst of the lampstands, which really takes up the bulk of the vision. Okay, But we'll take a brief look first at the seven lampstands. Now it appears... Because we read later, you know, we read the whole section all the way down to verse 20. It appears there's no real mystery as to what the lampstands represent. He says the lampstands are the seven churches. You see seven of them, seven churches, seven lampstands, bada bing, bada boom, we can go on to the next thing, right? No. <laughs> you guys should know me well enough. I'm not just going to stop there. It, it's just the seven churches. Now, have, do people here have, recognize or maybe Remember where you might have seen a lampstand in the Bible somewhere before? Well, there was a lampstand in the tabernacle or in the temple. Okay, that's one of the furnishings in the temple or in the, in the tabernacle. Um, you can read about it in Exodus 25, verses 30 to 40. It talks about the golden lampstand in the holy place. So again, if you think of the tabernacle, tab- tabernacle or temple, you had the outer court. Then you had the holy place, which the priests were able to go and administer daily. And then there's the most holy place, or the holy of holies is the place that only the high priest went once a year. So the lampstand was in that second place. It was in the holy place. And it was to be kept burning all the time, 24-7. So the priests would go in, and they would tend to that. They would trim the wicks, and they would make sure the oil was you know, filled, and they would continually have the fire burning, and they would have the showbread and all these other things in there. The altar of incense was in there as well. And these lampstands represent various things. It's the light of the Lord. Uh, It points to Jesus, who is the light of the world. Uh, And the people of God, of course, we are reflective of that. We are to be lights unto the world as well. But the light is not 
from us. Okay, we reflect the light. Um, just as Jesus, he is the, the true light, we are reflective of that light. But there's also a, a vision of a lampstand that the prophet Zechariah has in chapter 4. Now, just a little bit of background. Zechariah, like Haggai, we went through the book of Haggai some months ago. Uh, both of those prophets were post-exilic prophets. They were prophets of the people, sent by God to the people, after the 70 years of exile in Babylon. So they're, they're back in the land, and they were commanded to rebuild the temple but then they got sidetracked. So God sends prophets to them to sort of, hey, let's get on with rebuilding the temple like you were supposed to be doing. And in one of these visions Zechariah has, he sees a golden lampstand, which is representative of the temple that is to be rebuilt. Now, again, if you recall, when we looked through the book of Haggai, we spoke about how the temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of John, talks about how his body is the temple. He says to the priests, when he, when he clears the temple in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then John says, he is talking about the temple of his body. I mean, he just, it's not a mystery. He gives us the answer to the It's like you know, you're given the test question and then you're given the answer to it. So he's talking about the temple of his body. So he refers to the body of Christ as the fulfillment of the temple. And then we talked about how the church is also the body of Christ, right? The church is also the temple. You know, Peter talks about how we are living stones built into a holy temple. Paul talks again, we are a holy temple, the foundation. I mentioned that earlier, the foundation of Christ and the prophets. And then we are built on top of that foundation as a holy temple unto the Lord. So the church is also the fulfillment of the temple. So when you see this reference to the seven lampstands, to the as the you know connecting it to the seven churches, it sort of fits this overall biblical picture that we have of the symbolism behind the church. The church is the temple. The church is a light. All these things. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is uh, giving the Sermon on the Mount, uh, right after the Beatitudes, he says, "You," talking to his disciples, he says, "You are the light of the world." A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Of course, we get that little song, right? This little light of mine. <laughs> put it under a bushel. No way. You know, so. Okay. Now, you all didn't come here to hear me sing this little light of mine, I'm sure. So far more interesting than the vision of the seven lampstands is the one like the Son of Man who is in the midst of the lampstands. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Now, again, we talked about this, the Son of Man, this reference. It's not just he's human. It is a reference to Daniel 7 where he sees a vision of one like a Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days who then gives him authority and dominion over the nations and over the kingdoms of the world. We, we can go through Daniel at some point, but this is, you know, again, speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. And what John sees here, this description that he sees here in Revelation 1, is very similar to a description of, a, of an angelic messenger that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 10. Now, I'd wanted to kind of go through that, but I don't want to take 
too much time on it. You can look at it yourself. It's Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. And the imagery of what John sees here is very similar to the imagery that, that Daniel sees in chapter 10 of his prophecy. But the, the, the elements of this vision, we're going to go through them now. Um, first, the exalted Christ here is described as a, a son of man who is wearing this long garment that is girded about the chest with a golden sash or a golden band. Now, this imagery of a long robe with a gold sash and everything is very uh, similar to the, the imagery that you see of the Old Testament priests. And it speaks of Jesus as the great high priest. You know, we talk often about Jesus. He has the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. He is the great high priest. He is a priest sort of like of the order of Melchizedek, that that mysterious guy you see in Genesis 14, Melchizedek who comes and blesses Abraham. Jesus is the great high priest who makes atonement for his people. And here he is, he's ministering in the heavenly tabernacle. Again, remember I said the lampstand was an, a piece of furniture in the temple itself that the priests would tend to. They would make sure that the lights are shining. And here is Jesus Christ in the midst of a bunch of lampstands in priestly garb tending to the lampstands. He is, you know, and later on he'll say, you know, if you don't do what I say in, these, in the letters that you'll see later in chapter 2 and 3, one of them he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So, you know, he is the one ministering to these lamps. He tends to them. He makes sure that they're light, you know, that they're shining like they should be. The next element we see here is he's got hair that is white as wool or white like snow. And he's got eyes like flames of fire. Now, again, the white hair takes us back to Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days also had hair white like snow, uh, white as wool. And here, whereas the Ancient of Days, of course, was representative of God the Father, here, this, this picture of the hair white as wool, white as snow, is being spoken of to Jesus Christ. It's being uh, spoken of to him. Now, again, my hair is starting to go a little gray. I see some gray hair a little bit here, too. What, does, what do you think white hair represents? Close. Wisdom. There you go. You know, they, you know, and, and here's a person with a head whose hair is full of, it's, it's just white. It's completely white. Okay, now mine, I'm speckled, right? I got like a little salt and pepper thing going on. Some other people here, I mean, ran a little grayer than me, I think. You know, but, uh, you know, some people a little more salt than pepper. I'm probably maybe 50-50, I'm not sure. But the idea is, here is Jesus, the vision that he has He's got hair white as snow, white as wool, and he's got eyes with flames of fire. So both of these images speak of how he is all-knowing, how he is all-seeing, he's all-wise. His eyes, the flames of fire, his eyes penetrate into the truth of the matter. Again, when we go through the seven letters, each letter he says, I know your works. So again, here he is. He's the, the one ministering to the seven lampstands. He's the one in the midst of all the churches. He says, I know your works because he's got the eyes of fire. He's got, you know, that, that penetrate to the truth of the matter. 
And of course, now the next one, he's got feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. What good do you think bronze feet would do? I mean, it seems like that would be pretty heavy to try to walk with bronze feet. What do you think bronze feet would be good for? Stepping on snakes. That's a good one, yeah. I mean, all the better to crush your enemies with, right? Bronze feet. All the better to crush your enemies with. So he, he crushes his enemies with his bronze feet. Now he's got a voice like many waters. Again, this is a picture of the power of Jesus' voice. Okay? Ezekiel 124 speaks of the sound of many waters like the voice of the Almighty. And then in Psalm 29... There's a, after, uh, in fact, we read Psalm 29 as part of our call to worship this morning. But as you get past that sort of opening section of praise, there's a whole set of verses that talk about the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And it talks about how the voice of the Lord is powerful. It, it's like a storm. It is like a wave, a tidal wave. It is like a great wind. You know, the voice of the Lord is just this amazing, powerful Weapon that he that he wields uh, on his people and, and to judge. And then finally, here we see the seven stars in his right hand. It's not finally, but we're getting close to it. We'll pause on that for a second. But then the then it talks about this sharp two edged sword coming out of his mouth. Again, the sword is a reference to the word of the Lord. Um, Hebrews four two or sorry four twelve speaks of the word of the Lord. The word is like a sharp two-edged sword that pierces to the division of bone and marrow and joint and sinew. Um, and then, of course, in Revelation 19.15, which we will get to at some point in the future, Lord willing, here is the rider on the great white horse, the return of Jesus. He comes at the end. He's on a white horse. And it says he slays them with the, with the sword that comes out of his mouth. In other words, he speaks a word and all of his enemies are decimated. The sword that comes out. And of course, two edges. It's a sword that is used for judgment, but is also a sword that is used for salvation as well. Of course, the sword is also part of the spiritual armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. It is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he's got a face like the sun shining at full strength. Of course, this speaks to Jesus' all-consuming glory. Again, we talked about the transfiguration when the people, when John, Peter, James, and John go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus goes up there. It says like it says like a veil was parted, and and they saw Jesus shining forth in full glory. Again, he had clothes on, white as wool, white as any uh, you know bleach can clean them. And, you know, the, his face, it says it shone in, in the darkness there. And it, it was just this brilliant display of Jesus glory. And it's sort of like, you know, Peter, James and John were up there and, and they just kind of got a little bit of peek under the curtain of, of his humanity. They were able to pe- pull, peel it back a little bit and just get a glimpse of his glory. But this idea here is of the, his face shining like the sun at full strength talks about his all-consuming glory. And when you put all of these now, when you take all of this together, it's a pretty awesome sight, right? I think it's a pretty amazing sight. I think when I get to heaven, this is going to be the first video I check out at the Heavenly Video Store and rent because I want to see what this looked like, okay? 
Now, again, this is a vision. And as such, the images here are not to be taken literally. Okay, Jesus does not literally have bronze feet. And when he opens his mouth, he's got a sword flapping out of his lips. Okay, this is a, this is a vision that, that John is getting. It is a vision that is expressing truths about Christ, but are not to be taken as literal. In his glorified state, Jesus doesn't have bronze feet. He doesn't have a sword out of his mouth. He doesn't have literally white hair. But they describe realities that are true. They are visionary descriptions of things that are true about Jesus. He is powerful. His word is judging. He is all wise and all knowing. All these things. And that's, John has given a picture that's sort of, you know, like a picture is worth a thousand words. That's what, he, that's what he's getting here. Now, it's amazing because what are we told about Jesus when he was a human being? Was he impressive? No, he, you know, the prophet Isaiah says he was, you know, very unimpressive. He was someone we would never think to look at twice. Not this vision. <laughs> I think if I caught this vision, I'd be like, oh, you know, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd be glued to it or whatever. That is no longer the case here. John sees the full on glory of of the exalted Christ, even though it is in visionary form. And now we get to John's commission here in verses 17 through 20. Of course, after getting this vision, what is John's reaction? In verse 17, I I fell down as though dead. He sees the glorified Christ and he falls on his face. Again, think of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Very similar vision, in fact. You know, on the day that King Uzziah died, on the day where the earthly king was was killed, or not killed, where he just he died of old age, Isaiah enters into, he gets a vision of the heavenly temple, and he sees the one who is really on the throne. He gets a, vi- a vision of again, this is the exalted Christ, because in John 12 he says, This was what Isaiah saw. He saw the glory of Christ. So Isaiah gets a vision, and when he sees the vision of God in the temple, he says, I felt undone. I was disintegrated. I felt, woe is me. He pronounces a curse upon himself. So here John falls flat on his face as though dead. Now, notice the grace and the kindness of our Lord. Verses 17 and 18. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So here, after getting that vision of the exalted Christ, John falls down as though dead. And then Jesus takes his glorified nail-pierced hands and lays them on John's shoulder and says, Fear not. Fear not. Do not be afraid. How comforting is that? How comforting is that that the almighty Christ lays his hand upon his fallen servant and says, fear not. Fear not. I always think about this. Any, any Chronicles of Narnia fans here? Okay, one. <laughs> so Amy, I guess we're the only geeks and nerds here. Okay, My wife a little bit too. Okay. Well, I, I like this line at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as Aslan, who is a metaphor of Christ in, you know, in, in this. And as Aslan goes off, uh, Mr. Tumnus speaking to Lucy says, 
Aslan is not a tame lion. And then Lucy turns to Aslan and says, yes, but he is a good lion. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. Okay? In other words, Jesus Christ is not some timid, you know, meek and mild Jesus here. This is a, this is a vision of power. This is a vision of control. Yet, it is a vision of control by one who is good, one who is gracious, one who recognizes that our, that our form is frail. So when we see, when we compare ourselves with the vision of the exalted Christ, it should strike us with fear, but then our fears are calmed. Our fears are done away with as Jesus is good. And he tells us, fear not. In other words, he's on your side. (laughs) I'm on your side, okay? I'm fighting for you. And then we get another reference to Jesus being the first and the last. Uh, And then he says, I am the one who lives who is dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the one who has conquered death. The last time we saw, uh, he was, in in the last time we looked at it, he said he was the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one to enter into resurrection life. And now he is the one who is alive forevermore, for all eternity. By his resurrection, he has defeated death once and for all. And by our faith in his life and death and resurrection, we too will be conquerors over death. Through him. And of course, here Jesus goes even further. He says, I am the one who has the authority over death and over hell, over death and Hades, over death and the grave. Because he says, I have the keys. I have the keys. The keys represent the ability to open and close doors. I have the keys to death and Hades. I am in control. I have the authority. He gives the keys of the kingdom to the church, right? And the church officers exercise the office of the keys by administering the gospel, that is entry in, or by church discipline, that is sort of excluding from uh, church communion. That's the office of the keys to the church. Here, Jesus has the keys to death and the grave or death and Hades. And of course, again, that image of Daniel 7 keeps coming back in which the Ancient of Days gives one uh, to the one like a son of man the dominion and power to judge the world. Now again, if you think about it, what is more comforting to Christian, to a Christian suffering persecution for his or her faith than to know that the Lord that he or she serves is the one who is dead and behold is alive forevermore. That is the Lord who is sovereign over death and Hades. This is the comfort that the book of Revelation is meant to give and bring. No matter what you're going through today uh, for your testimony, Jesus places his hand upon your shoulder and says, fear not, fear not. And of course, then we get this final command, write what you see. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, the things that are and the things that are to take place after this. And in this statement, we sort of have a, an outline, if you will, of the book of Revelation. The things that are, uh, the things are sorry, the things that were, the things you've seen, the things that are and the things that will take place after this. So the things you have seen, that would be the vision that he just received. These are the things you've seen. The things that are, those are going to be what you see in chapters two and three, where he writes to the seven churches of Asia. 
And then the things that take place after this will be what you see from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 20. And he's told to write it in a book for preservation and safekeeping. Now, remember I said we're going to hold off on the seven stars that were in his right hand. We're going to look at the seven stars now as we get ready to close. So we talked about how the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We already talked about that. And it says here that the seven stars in verse 20 are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, there are various explanations as to what is meant by the angels of the churches. There are three, really. Uh, the first is that the angels refer to human pastors. Okay, so the, the messenger. Because the word angel, really, angelos in the Greek means, it could mean an angel, a supernatural being, or it really it's just a messenger, someone who is sent to deliver a message. So uh, some, many people actually take it to be the human pastors of the churches. Of course, some take it to be actual like guardian angels of the seven churches. I think it's a little weird to be, you know, write these letters to guardian angels of the churches. Okay. And then another explanation is that it is sort of like the personification of each church's identity. Okay. Now, again, it's difficult to to sort of discern what is meant by here. Um, I think it makes more sense to um, interpret angels here as in that third sense, sort of like the personification of each church's identity. Because, you know, he talks about how he, he will remove the church's lampstand if they don't, um, if they don't obey what his commands are at the end of each letter. And another way I also is because each time you see the word angelos in Revelation, it always refers to an angelic being. And besides, there are other words to use for pastor in, uh, that could have been used in this letter. So I'm somewhere between number two and number three with it, that their guardian angels are sort of a, in the personification of the church's identity. But the point is this. The bottom line is that it is the exalted Jesus who is in the midst of these lampstands. Okay? It is the exalted Jesus who is in the middle of his church, he is the one who is in control of the church. He is the one who cares for the church. And no matter what is happening in the world, Jesus is ministering to his church throughout all time, throughout all history. And we're going to see that now as we, you know, next time we're going to start looking at these letters individually to the to these seven churches. Because he is, the, he is the, the, the husband. He is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. He is the bridegroom. He can, so we'll see in these letters, he's going to speak words of encouragement to them. He's going to speak words of hope to them. He's going to speak words of rebuke to them. Correction. And like I said, even threatening to take away their light. As he says in Revelation 2.5. But this vision also speaks that it is Christ and his church which are really at the center of God's plan for the world. Christ and his church are what is really center for God's plan in the world. Not the rise and fall of world governments, not the false religions of other cultures, not the cult of personality that we see in modern culture today. It is Christ and his church which are at the center and focus of God's plan for all of history. So we have just finished here the things that have been seen. 
Lord willing, when we meet in two weeks, October 18th, we're going to start looking at the things that are as we start looking at the letters to the seven churches.